Take your Bibles if you turn with me this morning to Genesis 16. Be spending the next two weeks in Genesis 16, verses 1 through 6. I have two messages I want to preach on it. I'll be talking through, giving a little bit of preview of next week this week, but talking through uh, something different this week. The title of the message, The Consequences of Pragmatic Faith. In Genesis 15, Abraham was given a promise. He was promised that a child would come from his own bloodline that would carry forth his lineage and through him there would become a great nation. He was promised that he would inherit the land upon which at that time he sojourned as a stranger and as a pilgrim. And we spent Genesis 15 thinking through all of the the. the, the implications of these promises and uh, Abram receiving them, then believing them, then it being counted unto him for righteousness, then uh, recognizing that 400 years between when Abram was given that promise and when it would come to fruition out of God's long suffering and mercy for the people of the land, understanding as well God's patience as Abram asks for, God, for clarity. God gives clarity. Abram believes the clarity, but then he asks for a sign and God gives him that sign as well. God gives him these great and these precious promises and Abram believed them by faith. And we carried that exhortation of faith into our own lives, desiring that we would follow in that same example of faith. That we would be men and women who, when we know what the will of God is according to his word, when we perceive the will of God through instruction, through prayer, through counsel, that we would then trust those things that have been handed to us and we would position ourselves to receive them as we just sang, that we would trust and obey. Today we find, in a sense, the other side of the coin. Abram has been given these promises. Abram believed these promises. But having a child is not just a one-person thing. Abram has a wife. How's she feeling throughout this whole event? What are her conclusions and her thoughts within the scope of these promises. Today we are reminded and warned that it's not enough to hear God's will and then go about in ourselves to make that will come to pass in whatever way we see fit. Rather, the desire of God is that knowing His will, we would then do His will His way. That might even mean waiting for God to bring about His way for His will. And we're reminded of this through an interaction between Abram and his wife, Sarai, in verses 1 through 6 of Genesis 16. That'll be our text today. However, I'm just going to begin by reading verses 1 through 3. The Bible says this. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children, and she had in handmaid an Egyptian whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold, now the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her, that would be Hagar, to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. 
So we knew already that Sarai was, to this point in the life of Abram and Sarai, a woman that could not, uh, or at least did not have children. Abram, at this point, is well into his 80s. Sarai is well into her 70s. Uh, by implication, it's apparent that Abram told his wife about the interaction that he had had with the Lord in Genesis 15. Sarai appears to be well-versed in the fact that God had promised at this point that Eleazar of Damascus would not be Abram's heir, that Abram would have an heir of his own bowels so that they both know and indeed I believe both believed that God was going to give Abram a son from his own bowels, a son out of his own bloodline. Now, think about that with me. Sarai is barren. She hears God make these promises to her husband. You can perhaps imagine the kind of mental and emotional state into which this would put Sarai. Every adult in this room understands that having a child involves two people. One male, one female, every time. I know that's controversial in our culture today, but every time. With one notable exception, of course, that being the conception of Jesus Christ by the Holy Ghost. And because we know that, we know that the incapacity of a couple to have a child could be a problem of either side of the relationship, right? It's not implicit that the inability to have a child is the fault of the woman or the man. It could be one, the other, or both. However, in this case, we do know. We do know that Sarai was, uh, I'll use the word the problem, uh, that the problem was on Sarai's end. And we know this because several chapters ago, the text told us this. In Genesis chapter 11, verse 30, the Bible says, but Sarai was barren, she had no child. And the word barren there does not mean simply she didn't have a child. It means that she was sterile or she was infertile. She, the text says, was the one who had the physical problem by which they were not able to have children. So the text tells us this. Because of some condition rooted in Sarai's body, her health, her wellness, whatever it might be, she did not have children. Now think through me then. Think with me. Think through with me. There we go. The idea of Genesis 15 and how Abram's wife must have felt. Remember back to that message right at the beginning of Genesis 15. I know it was a while ago. Abram was feeling discouraged. He was feeling vulnerable. He is confused. God has promised him great things, but he has no child. Right now, the chief servant, Eleazar of Damascus, is his heir. Then God speaks to Abram and he says, No, Abram. In fact, you will have a child from your, own, from your loins, from your bowels a child of your own blood, of your own lineage. And Abram believes God. And the Bible says that is counted unto him for righteousness. Now imagine Abram goes back to Sarai. We have no record of her being there at that moment. Maybe she was, maybe she heard it right then. But imagine Abram going back to Sarai and saying these things to her. God has made this promise to me. Then I went out and I cut these animals in half and I laid them in this trough and all the blood pooled and I was going to make this covenant with God. But then I went, fell into a deep sleep and, and, and a, a lamp passed through those, the, the, those portions after God had promised me that it would be this period of time before I would inherit these things. And Sarai is listening to all of these things and imagine what goes through her heart and mind. She knows she's barren. She knows Abram is theoretically perfectly capable of having children. The reason why he hasn't had children is because she hasn't had children. Imagine how frustrated she must have been with herself in that moment. 
Imagine how vulnerable she must have been feeling. Now, as we play out this scenario, I'm going to make some inferences. Today's message is going to be somewhat inferential. I'm drawing some things out based upon what, what Sarai does here, trying to understand why it is she would do what she did. To that end, you can feel free to disagree with me today. The application, however, is going to draw us to a warning which is not inferential at all. It will be certainly one that whether you agree with me or not that this is an example of it, the application will still, I think, be helpful to all of God's people today. I believe in this point, Sarai believes she's the problem. She's the one standing between Abram and God's promises. She is the one that is standing between her husband and these blessings. And if only she were different, if only she were out of the picture, if only she could have a child, if only she were not his wife, then her husband could have all of the things that he sought for, that he left his family for, even all the things that God had promised him, but which he didn't have. And maybe she felt in this moment that it was all her fault. Now, we know this is not true. She even actually admits herself in the text that it's not true. She says it's not. She says something different. In verse 2, she says, Behold, now the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. So she gives, she, she gives lip service to the idea that God is the one that has stopped her from bearing. But she does not then extend that faith, faith to say, I wonder when it will be that God will allow me to have a child. That's not the direction that her faith takes her. We know that God is the one who opens and closes the womb. We know that God has a plan and he is absolutely and utterly capable of doing what he will. Regardless of biological complications, regardless of physical circumstances, God is capable of doing what he will. But just because this is what we know, it doesn't always mean that this is how we feel, does it? Remember the words of God to Judah through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17.9. Many of you are very well familiar with this verse. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Christian, God has given us our emotions. And our emotions are a credit to us as humans. Emotions are not a wrong thing. Emotions are not a sinful thing. Emotions are not a bad thing. Emotions are important. They are essential, even, to the human experience. They connect us not only to our humanity, but our emotions also connect us to God. They are not something to be rejected. They are not something to be ashamed of. They are not something to avoid. But I believe in this moment, Sarai allowed her emotions to override her understanding, to direct her faith in a way that was imbalanced. Emotions are indeed something which can become easily imbalanced in our lives, aren't they? Emotions are something which can become out of control. When we allow ourselves to be ruled by our emotions. And if we allow ourselves to be ruled by our emotions, this we can know our emotions will, in fact, rule us. They will override our reason. They will override our understanding. They will even have the capacity to override truth. 
and they will do so in the most deceitful of ways. When your feelings rule your life, you can and will be convinced of any number of errors or even lies. When your emotions rule you, you will be able to, the word that we use today within our title is pragmatically explain away things, calling them faith, calling them obedience, calling them trust, when in fact they are anything but because your emotions have twisted the definitions of such to align with what you are feeling. Your emotions can convince you that because you have very real and genuine feelings about something that the genuineness of what you are feeling validates the truth of how you feel. That because you feel something genuinely, and it's true, you, you, you genuinely feel this way, then you, get, you are convinced because you genuinely feel that way, that because those feelings are genuine, that means what you're feeling is true. And that's not the case all the time. They may be true, but it may not be. The correlation is not causation in this sense. That because your feelings are true and honest, that must mean that what you are feeling is true and honest. And this is a lie, Christian. Emotions are a wonderful thing. But they are not a trustworthy thing. If you base what you do or how you think on how you feel, you will end up causing harm to yourselves and others. Because how you feel, no matter how true and honest those feelings are, will not produce a true and an honest assessment of the circumstances around you reliably. How you feel will drive you to anger where you should otherwise exercise forgiveness. How you feel will drive you to distance yourself where you should otherwise exercise reconciliation. How you feel will drive you to hate where you should otherwise exercise love. And how you feel will drive you to human, carnal, potentially even sinful solutions for problems which are fully within the capable hands of a true and living God if only you would trust what you know above how you feel. To override how you feel about a set of circumstances by what you know of God. Now, I believe that's what's happening to Sarai here. And we're going to talk more about that in a minute. And this particular propensity to be directed by how we feel, as opposed to what we know to be true, as we look throughout history, as we look throughout time and circumstance, is a propensity which is significantly more common in women than it is in men. To be more precise, it's a naturally feminine characteristic. I'm not saying that to say that women are some way inferior and women, if this offends you, if it offends you for me to say that, I, I'm very sorry you're offended, but I don't think what I'm saying is incorrect. If you deny the reality of God's design in men and women, there, there's one reason for that denial, and that's because you're allowing how you feel to override what is true. Now, the truth that exists here by no means implies that women are any, in any way inferior to men. Only different from men. But the differences between men and women do mean that God has given us different roles. And it is this difference by which God has given men the role of headship in both home and in society. 
And that's actually what we're going to talk about next week. Next week will be a dedicated message on headship because here we find a dramatic example of what happens it's the second example in scripture, the first one being Adam and Eve. This is the second example of what happens when a man yields his headship to his wife. And through that, we're going to learn some important principles about headship, which every single man who is married or who has the potential of being married needs to hear as it relates to your marriages. It's also something that we will connect to society broadly as it relates to our society's leaders. But there are a few things that I want to be clear about it this morning. First, the idea that we think through this concept of headship. It doesn't mean that men can't or shouldn't be emotional or have emotions. Emotions are not bad, evil, or wrong. We've said that already. It is when we are controlled by emotions that things go wrong. Men, we don't need to live up to some sort of code of masculinity that would imply that we cannot have emotions. In fact... To be quite honest, it is an emotion, an emotional drive that compels a man to the desire to protect, to provide, to prepare for what lies ahead. And yet, very commonly, the idea of masculinity, the true idea of masculinity is not that a man has no emotions. It's that those emotions are a response to the reality as he sees it, and then it drives him in that response to harness those emotions into action, into virtue, not to be let uh, run amok in our lives. And this stands in dramatic distinction to the kind of men that have been grown in our culture in recent generations. From our politicians, to our celebrities, to our philosophers, to our scientists, to our pastors. We've lived in a society for several generations, the better part of 100, of 100 years now, that has been rooted in, well, I'll say it this way, that, that, is, that is feminized, effeminate, female-driven. It's ironic that in the past 10 years or so, the Me Too movement and feminism has, has pushed this patriarchal idea. We have lived in a female-driven society now for the better part of 100 years. Public schools are an entirely female-dominated environment in which boys are raised for 13 years being forced to learn the way women learn and being censured or placed at a disadvantage if they cannot adapt to learning the way women learn. No-fault divorce has separated boys from their fathers for generations now. Statistically, nearly 70% of divorces in our society being initiated by the woman, by the wife, and with courts who almost without fail give primary custody of those children to their mothers. And for the past 50 years or so, the church has been dominated by women as well. The character of Jesus has been perverted to look like that of a deeply emotional beta male who just wants to love who accepts everyone just as they are, regardless of their flaws, and who, empathy, who allows empathy to override every other sentiment in his life and in his conception. Now, this is all absolutely false as it relates to the character of Jesus. Jesus came in meekness, not weakness. Meekness is strength under control, strength directed unto a purpose. Jesus came the first time as the lamb who was slain in mercy, 
not to accept men's faults, not to overlook men's faults, not to tell society that everything was going to be okay. He came in meekness and strength under control, all power given unto him, but determined in that moment to use that power, to limit that power as a means by which to give men time to repent, because then there's coming a day where Jesus will not return as the lamb that was slain, but as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And on the day that he comes again as that lion, not as a lamb dumb before his shearers, but as that lion of Judah, he will have his vesture dipped in blood. He will have a sword in his hand. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that he is Lord and he will judge the world in righteousness. And it's the same Jesus. It's the same God. And it was the same Jesus on that day where he forgave, where he said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. So the church has also fallen into this idea of emotionality. And so our institutions have created a culture of feminized men. Effeminate men is the way the scriptures describe it. So that when someone says men are just as much driven by their emotions in our culture as women are, they're exactly correct. Because men have been taught to do exactly that. Men have been rewarded societally for doing exactly that. And this is why Western culture is where we are today, because we have created this generation of men who have yielded their headship. And we'll talk about that. That'll that'll be next week. Back to our text, however. Sarai. In this moment, she hears these promises. They are validated. They are true. Abram believes them, and I have no doubt she believes them as well. Imagine how she feels in that moment. She's the problem. She's in the way. And in this place of distress, she attempts to do what so many godly, faithful, wonderful women do for their husbands. I believe Sarah was a godly, faithful, and wonderful woman, and she did exactly what you would expect her to do in that state. She says, I have to set myself aside for my husband. If she's the problem then she can just give of herself, allow her husband to marry some other woman so that he can have the child that God promised to him. God has obviously restrained me from bearing, she says, so take Hagar and have a child through her that we can raise. Now again, I'm making a bunch of inferences here. But I don't think that this was something Sarah I wanted. I think she convinced herself in her love for Abram and in her faith in what God said he was going to do that she could do this thing for her husband. I think she convinced herself in her love for God that she could set herself aside in order to provide the circumstance by which God's will could be accomplished in Abram's life. I believe she was being utterly genuine here, exercising what she thought was great faith in this setting aside the life that she had built with her husband to provide for her husband's future and to to, to bring about God's will in their lives. But what she thought was faith wasn't faith. And we know it wasn't faith, not because it asked something of her. Faith often asks something of us, doesn't it? We know it wasn't faith, because it compelled her to step outside of headship, because it compelled her to step outside of God's design. God does not need us to step outside of his design to bring about his purposes. That's pragmatic faith, Christian. God does not need us to be his problem solver for him. That's pragmatic faith, Christian. So we say, I know what God's will is, and so I'm going to do 
what I think is best to bring about God's will. It's a wonderful motivation. The feelings are genuine and even right. But what it compels us unto is not if it's outside of God's timing, if it's outside of God's design. This was not faith. This was pragmatism. Faith is doing God's will God's way. This was seeking to accomplish God's will her way. So Sarai has a handmaid who is an Egyptian. Probably picked her up when they were in Egypt, when they had sojourned down in Egypt. Another consequence of Abram sojourning in that land. And this girl, likely quite young, was named Hagar. Sarah, I reasoned that since she could not have children and Abram was going to have a child, right? It's, he is going to have a child. Now, she's in her 70s. She's barren. She's never had any children. And Abram is going to have a child. She reasons then that, well, the solution must be that she's being selfish. She needs to step aside. She needs to let Abram have a child with a different woman. And what Sarah expected was that this woman would function as effectively a surrogate for her so that the child that Hagar would bear would become Abram and Sarai's and Sarai would raise that child as her own with her being considered the mother. This would not necessarily be something that was unfounded culturally. We see a very similar thing in Jacob's days, right? With both Leah and Rachel, where uh, when Rachel can't have kids, she takes her, her, con uh, her, her handmaid and makes him uh, Jacob's concubine so that she can have kids through uh, her handmaid. And then, and then Leah does the same when she stops having kids and they're, they're fighting back and forth. So this is not an uncommon cultural thing, right? But this is Sarai's idea. And she presents this idea to her husband, Abram, asking him to do this thing. Abram listens to Sarai, acquiesces to her request, and takes Hagar to be a second wife. We continue in verses 4 through 6. And he went in unto Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, that would be when Sarai saw that Hagar had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. And Sarai said unto Abram, My wrong be upon thee. I have given my maid into thy bosom. And when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between me and thee. But Abram said unto Sarai, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Do to her as it pleaseth thee. And when Sarai dealt hardly with her, she fled from her face. We'll stop there in our text for this morning. So Abram goes in unto Hagar. And Hagar conceives. She, she, she has a child with Abram. Sarai immediately realizes that she had made a mistake because Hagar, who was her handmaid, now felt superior to Sarai. Hagar not only was having a child where her, her mistress could not, which of course culturally in that day would have been a tremendous uh, imbalance, right? But on top of that, she is bearing the child of her mistress's husband. And immediately, Hagar actually despises now Sarah. She has no respect or honor for Sarah any longer. Why should I be the handmaid to this woman when, I have, when I'm bearing the child of this woman's husband? The imbalance, the mistake, the, the, the impossibility of the emotional and interpersonal relationships between those two women is now excessively apparent, immediately apparent, as soon as Hagar realizes that she's pregnant and begins to despise her mistress. But notice this next, and this is why I believe that everything that I've said is founded on something. Uh, uh, I had the confidence to share it with you this morning. 
Immediately, Sarai blames Abram. My, she, she, she says in verse, um, excuse me, verse uh, five, my wrong be upon thee. Sarai talking to her husband. Now immediately, our immediate re- response would be, wait a minute, Sarai. You suggested this. You asked for this. Abram did this at your request. And again, we'll consider this next week. We'll dedicate the message to it. But Sarai is not wrong here. This was Abram's responsibility. It was his responsibility to recognize where his wife was, what she would be feeling in that moment, to understand that this was not the right way to go about it, and to shut this down. And he did not do it. So when she says, my wrong be upon thee, she's absolutely correct. Abram yielded his headship in this moment. This is on him. This is not on her. Husbands, fathers, leaders, this is one of those truths that we have to understand. When the buck stops with you, you bear the consequences. Yeah, but, but, but all I did is let someone else do what they asked me to do. You bear the consequences. You are the leader. He did not check his wife's incorrect impulses. He did not reject his wife's incorrect pleas. He allowed her to take headship here and to dictate his decision. He yielded his headship and the wrong is upon him. And now his wife is heaving under the weight of a jealousy which she never should have been under if only her husband had maintained control over his own home. Now, Abram's solution to this problem was to remind Sarai that Hagar is her handmaiden and that she could treat Hagar however she pleased. If she is not treating you with respect, then do something about it. She's yours. You can do whatever you want with her. And this is exactly what Sarai then did. She dealt very harshly with Hagar, reacting very negatively to Hagar's emotional disdain, so much so that Hagar actually fled from before Sarai in sorrow. And we'll talk about the interaction between Hagar and the Lord, uh, not next week, because we're talking about headship next week, but the week after. And we'll think through the implications, uh, the further implications about Abram's decision to yield his headship. But for today, I simply want to come back to what happened here to this idea of pragmatic faith. Beware, Christian, of pragmatic faith. Sarai was mixed up here. She was confused, I believe. I believe she knew and believed that God would give her husband a child. I believe she could not understand how it was going to happen because she was barren. I think she convinced herself that she was the problem. And instead of reminding herself that God was bigger than her problem... She sought for a temporal, earthly, carnal solution to bring about God's will in her husband's life. I have no doubt that her intentions were honest and genuine and good. I have no doubt that her actions were driven by a desire to see her husband happy and fulfilled. 
I have no doubt that her desire was to allow them both to rest secure in the reality that God's promises could now be fulfilled in their lives. Abram had been in the land for 10 years now. He's trying to figure out what's going on. He is unsettled. His wife knows he's unsettled. And she felt as though in that moment she could give of herself in order to produce a solution. I think that's what happened here. But these good intentions drove her not deeper into God's timing or God's power or God's provision, but instead they drove her to seek an earthly solution, a temporal solution, to run to human wisdom, human solutions, and in doing so, cultural solutions, the cultural solution of the day. And in doing so, her attempt at fulfilling the very thing which her faith aimed at ended up utterly compromising her position of faith and flinging the entire family into chaos. And so the warning this morning is very simple. Guard yourself from such a pragmatic faith, Christian. The faith that says God will provide, only then to run to all of the human, temporal, and carnal solutions, maybe even sinful solutions to fulfill that provision in your life. A faith that says God will lead, only to then do everything exactly how any other man or woman, saved or unsaved, carnal or spiritual, will act in their own lives. And in doing so, reaping at best only the rewards that everyone else will reap, and then somehow crediting those results to God. Is it any wonder that we have generations of young people who are not convinced about the God of the Bible? How many of them have seen their elders, their churches, come to God's word in God's way, actually wait on the Lord, truly seek God's will on God's terms, reject what would be the simple solution in deference to the, the solutions of God? How are the solutions that we seek in the church any different from those that are sought among the rest of society? Do we seek them in a different way? What do we run to when we have problems? Do we run directly to prayer? Do we wait on the Lord? Or do we simply go to the exact same solutions that every single other person goes to? And then credit those solutions to God, except that our children look and say, but, but the neighbor has those same solutions. And they've received the same results. So what, what does God have to do with it? If the results are the same and the solutions are the same, then, then why do we need God? What good has he done for us? But beyond just the similar results, how often do our children see things just not work out? We say that we trust God, but then we have all the same problems as the world around us. We trust God, but we have the same excesses. We have the same arguments. We have the same alienation. We have the same unforgiveness. We have the same selfishness. We have the same debts. And our lives bear the same results. We live in confusion. We live in disagreement. We live in jealousy. We live in anger. We live in selfishness. And we couch it under Christian terms. But it's the same results. And when we see this, when our children see this, is it any wonder that they're not particularly interested in what we have to offer? This isn't because we don't know what God has promised. We do know what God has promised. I don't even think it's because we don't believe what God has promised. I think we do believe what God has promised. But I think it's because we have been taught by culture, 
God, for, God forgive us by churches to seek the pragmatic solutions, to exercise a pragmatic faith, a faith that sees what God has promised and then has been convinced because our culture is so wealthy and we're so capable technologically and we're so literate and we're so prosperous. We've been convinced that when at once we pinpoint God's promises, we then say, okay, thank you, God, for showing us what you want of us. We'll take it from here. Because we are a society that can do that, right? We've got the money. We've got the gumption. We've got the ability. We've got the freedom to build, to do. So God, we'll take it from here. And so falling into a pragmatic faith, which has a form of godliness, but denies the power thereof. From which Paul warns us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, we should turn away. It's for this reason that the prophet Jeremiah contemplates in Lamentations chapter 3 verse 26. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Because that process of hoping and quietly waiting for God to do what he has promised to do shields us from a pragmatic sort of faith. Say, Pastor, are you saying just sit on your hands, sit on the couch, eat potato chips and wait for God to save you? No, no, you do your part, God does the rest. But what we don't want to do is fall into a kind of pragmatic faith where we step outside of God's design, we step outside of God's methods, or we step outside of God's timing in order to do the rest. So we say we believe God, and then we go about to solve our problems our way in God's name, only to then see the results consistent not with God's way, not with God's salvation, not with God's provision, but with our own way. So the question is, have you been exercising pragmatic faith in your life, Christian? God says he will provide. Then you ignore your family, you skip church, you neglect your wife so you can earn the money to, to, to be provided for. And then you call that God's provision. That's a pragmatic faith, Christian. You say that God is providing but God's way will never ask you to yield all of the responsibilities that you have in life in order to earn money. That's not how God's will is going to work. That's a pragmatic faith. So God commands us to be separated and to touch not the unclean thing. And I am trying to articulate to my people in my church how it is that you need to be separated, that you need to live in ecclesiastical, personal separation as we read in the scriptures. And so what I do is I tell my congregation that all modern things are evil. And I instruct you to tell your kids that everything that can be used for evil must itself then be evil. And I tell you to reject interaction with the world around you. And I overextend scripture and I misinterpret the text all with the very good intention of keeping you safe from the evils that are in the world. Sure, I'm stretching the text to make you think that certain things are sinful, which really aren't, but at least you're not doing those things. At least you'll be safe from the possibility of falling into sin. Sure, your children are being raised to think that things are explicitly sinful, which in fact are not, but at least it will keep them way far away from the line of sin. And if I do that, I'm living out a pragmatic faith. 
I am rejecting the capacity of the Holy Spirit of God to do his work in you, and I'm trying to play the Holy Spirit. I'm stepping outside of the design for me to remind you of things and stepping into the compulsion to manipulate you into doing what I think you ought. That's a pragmatic face. That's me taking upon myself as pastor that role that belongs only to the Holy Spirit in your life. I think I'm teaching you in faith. I believe these things. I have faith in these things. None of that is off kilter. And because you aren't doing those things which you ought not be doing, I say, see, the results are there. But what I am in fact doing is I'm instilling in God's people confusion as to right and wrong. What I'm actually doing is demanding your loyalty to me rather than to the text. What I'm actually doing is creating an environment where you all are judged and judging based upon actions rather than principles. That's a pragmatic faith, Christian. We don't want to go there. God has seen fit to make us stewards. Stewards of our lives. Stewards of our families. Husbands, steward of, stewards of your wives. Fathers, stewards of your children. God has made me, among other men in the church, stewards of this congregation. But stewardship means that we're asked to lead under the authority of the one who owns it all. I'm the head of my wife, who is a child of the living God. I'm the father of my children, who have been assigned to my authority by God. I am the pastor of Legacy Baptist Church, as it has been identified by the people of the church through the laying on of hands. God has not given me or you the license to take the concepts of what he wants to do in us and through us and dispose of them however we see fit. God's will is important, but just as important as God's way. So Sarai, in this moment in time, sought for a solution by which she could see God's will realized in their lives. She, I believe, in, in genuine love for her, her husband and in genuine faith in God's promise, sought for that solution. But then what she did in order to find it was she became pragmatic. She stepped outside of design and timing and then she encouraged her husband, and again, the yielded headship, we'll talk about that next week. He yielded his headship and acquiesced to it. Her idea was noble. And in a misguided way, it was even very sacrificial, wasn't it? You look at what she tried to do there, and you'd say, That's, that, 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 that in theory has a nobility to it, a sacrificial mindset to it. But what it actually reflected was a misguided attempt rooted in the failure to hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. And as we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, the world is still reeling from the consequences of that decision on that day. And that reminds us as it relates to pragmatic faith, that the consequences of pragmatic faith, particularly in leaders... The consequences of Sarai's pragmatic faith on that day should have ended on that day. Didn't. 
because Abram yielded his headship. But the consequences of pragmatic faith may not just affect you, Christian. They can affect those who love you, and they can certainly affect those who depend on you. So the question that we ask this morning is, how are you doing today? Have you fallen into some sort of pragmatic faith? I gave a couple of examples. Not going to dig into a bunch more because it's not my job to do so. If the Holy Spirit of God has taken these concepts and has bubbled something up in your life where the Spirit of God is saying, that's pragmatic faith, Christian, then you've got to deal with that. Have you fallen into this sort of a faith? Are you truly devoted to God's promises, but, but in that devotion, have you forgotten that it is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord? God's will, essential. God's way, just as important. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.